past two Sundays, we've started digging into the first three chapters of Revelation, where Jesus has a message for each of the seven churches in the province of Asia, today's Western Turkey, real churches, real places, and we've been noticing how Jesus evaluates those congregations, and uh, he has a critical message for each of them, loves them deeply, but with a message for each of them, and we're doing this because we want to understand if Jesus has a message for us, Lakewood Church, that we hear him and we respond well to him. Jesus loves his congregations. And we have said that because we're 21st century Western Christians, our mindset tends to miss how much the Lord is concerned for and cares for individual congregations. Our focus, because we are an individualistic society, tends to be how individual believers fit into the universal body of Christ. We focus on the individual and the global, but we underestimate how concerned Jesus is about individual congregations. And let me take that challenge just a little bit further for you. Dr. Gordon Johnson did an important word study of the word church, ecclesia, in the New Testament. In the original Greek language, the word ecclesia church is used 112 times from Matthew to Revelation, and 12 of those times, it clearly uh, is referencing the universal church, all believers in Jesus from every congregation and from every time. 90 times, the word definitely refers to a local assembly, and then 10 times, the use is debatable and unclear. So what is the predominant sense of church in the New Testament? It is that local assembly, the local congregation. And Jesus loves his congregations, as we're seeing here in Revelation. He's greatly interested and greatly concerned about what happens in each of them. And how important it is for us to think biblically about Lakewood Church. Jesus does have something to say to us as individuals within this body. But his evaluation of us is as us. Too often in the church, we get to thinking about them and me. If we've got a problem, it's them, not me. No, it's us, and we are responsible before the Lord as an us. And listen, we've got to think of ourselves as an us because it's the only way to banish blame. If Lakewood's got a problem, stop blaming and start helping. Blaming destroys unity. Blaming comes out of pride and defensiveness. It's time for us to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us and become part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Another thing that might, that might have stretched you last Sunday was the whole issue of repentance. Some of us have thought that Repent, that's what we did when we first confessed our sins and received Christ. Yes, it is. But repentance is not just a one-time necessity. 
Repentance means turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. And listen, for a growing Christian, that is a daily, sometimes several times a day, requirement. A growing believer will have a lifestyle of repentance, praying, Jesus, take away these thoughts. Help me resist temptation. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. That is a repentance prayer. Lord, I turn to you to do your will and for the strength that I need that you can provide. We resist, don't we, the idea of repentance because somehow we feel when somehow when we feel guilt, we take on shame. But listen to this. There is nothing that you or I have ever done or ever will do that God has not already decided to forgive at the cross of Calvary. So when you blow it, because you will, don't take on shame. Quickly repent and trust Christ to forgive you. It's already under the blood of the cross, praise God. And a growing believer doesn't resist repentance. He's eager to discover where he's been wrong so that he can experience the joy of forgiveness and move deeper into grace. None of us can live in perfection. We've blown that already but we can live in forgiveness. And that is so sweet. Just those comments by way of introduction and review from last Sunday. And now let's dig into today's text. And, and would you pray with me before we do? Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy. That is our prayer. Speak, Lord. Your children are listening. Amen. The year was 1993, and it seems like yesterday. I went with a group of pastors into... Uh, the newly liberated Ukraine to establish sister church relationships with congregations of believers who had suffered long and suffered much under Soviet communism and, and, it, and its persecution of believers. And we prayed and we wept with pastors, some of whom had spent years in the gulag for their faithfulness to preach Christ. I actually sat at a kitchen table where Nikita Khrushchev had once sat as that older pastor told me about the time the Soviet officials burst into their Sunday morning worship service and demanded that they end their service and go to help pick sugar beets by hand in the fields. And with grace, the leaders of that church agreed that they would end their service and they would go to the fields if the officials promised to stop their regular habit of harassing their services. Khrushchev, who was then the Minister of Agriculture for Central Ukraine, came to that home of that pastor to actually thank the pastor and say that the government would keep its promise. 
which it did for a while. What was it like to preach and pray in churches where just five years earlier it was illegal to teach your children the Bible, where, where up until then believers were denied any hope of a higher education, and, and where pastors were frequently exiled to the Siberian gulag, some starved and worked to death? What was it like? It was humbling, I can tell you that. I felt I was in the presence of saints with biblical stature. They became my heroes. I knew I was talking to some of Jesus' favorite people. So when I turned to Revelation chapter 2 and to study a church, the second of the seven churches, one with persecution, this has very interesting significance to me, turn to Revelation 2 verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, conquers. We'll see this word nakao over and over again. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Several comments now about the background and what we know about the city of Smyrna, uh, and then we'll dig into the text. Now, this is the shortest of the seven letters, and it's written to a church that's under stress. Smyrna is today the city of Izmir in Turkey, right on the coast, just five miles from Ephesus that we studied last time. And today, Izmir is the third largest city in Turkey. This is approximately 70 AD when this was written down. Here was a church that was under persecution. Smyrna was a place where Christians were harassed and oppressed and terribly treated. You paid a big price for being a Jesus follower in Smyrna. It's tough, and Jesus tells them it's going to get tougher. Why? Remember now, it's 30 years or more since the message of Jesus was first preached in this region. And who is Caesar, emperor of Rome? Nero. You've heard about Nero. Nero was famous for his hatred of Christians. Nero didn't start that, but Nero encouraged it. And here was one of the pockets of hatred for Jesus' followers. Why? Listen. Greeks and Romans were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. This god helped with agriculture. That god helped with sailors. This god protected women and childbirth. This other god is our favorite family deity. They had little shrines in their houses with many little statues that they worshipped. And every city had on the highest point in the city, an Acropolis, where they had temples uh, that, where they worshipped all the gods. And also Caesar worship had become the universal practice in the empire. 
Caesar was seen along with all the pantheons to be another god to whom you were supposed to burn incense and give offerings and offer prayers and worship. So why should they care if someone worshiped Jesus? Just add him to the list, right? No, it was because Christians believed in only one God, one true God, the only deity worthy of worship, eternally existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They refused to go along with the crowd. They would not do what everyone else was doing, and especially they weren't going to worship Caesar, a man, as though he was a God. And it got nasty in Smyrna. That city was also a place where guilds and trade unions controlled the politics and dominated commerce and held huge power. And part of their practice, their meetings and their trade was always burning incense to Caesar and worshiping also the patron god of whatever industry they were in. And if you would not participate, if you would not join in, they could destroy your ability to make a living. They'd keep you from buying and trading, perhaps keep you even from being able to shop for food in the city market. That's the situation in Smyrna. So let's dig into the text, and again we see the familiar template and how this letter is structured, but again we see that this local congregation is addressed uniquely for what's going on in their church. First, the salutation to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. These are the words of the one who existed before all things and the one who will remain after all things. the Alpha and the Omega, another way of saying that, who died and rose to life, who's that? Well, there's no question. This is the message of the Lord Jesus to his beloved church in the city of Smyrna. Now the commendation, I know your tribulation. This is the word thlipsis in the original language. Earlier translations translated it persecution, but that's a different word, a more specific word. This is a more general word. It means tribulation and trouble and affliction. It can involve persecution as it does here, but it's broader than that. This is a church that has persecution plus. It's tough. I know your poverty These folks, in addition to being persecuted, were poor. Why? Quite possibly, the persecution had involved them getting kicked out of their jobs because they wouldn't burn incense to Caesar or visit the pagan temples. Because of those things, no one would do business with them. If they earned any money, they they couldn't buy what they needed in the markets even to survive. They wouldn't take their money. But listen, Smyrna, I know you're poverty, but you're really rich. You don't have money. You don't have stuff. But you're rich, maybe richer than the folks who have stuff. You're rich because God loves you and God favors you. You're learning in hardship how to trust God and and walk with God. That's real 
wealth. I know you're being slandered by those who say that they are Jews but are really a synagogue of Satan. They're being lied about. How's that? Well, Christians weren't the only groups persecuted in ancient Rome. Jews were persecuted for the same dynamics. In fact, early Christians were just considered a sect of the Jews. And Jews also refused to worship the pagan deities. But it seems that when they came under persecution, at least at Smyrna, they pointed their finger at Christians. And the slander was probably related to the Lord's Supper. They'd heard about communion, like Christians eating the body and blood of Christ. And they accused the Christians of cannibalism. By the way, that insulting misunderstanding of communion is still around. When I've been in Ukraine, I've heard the accusation that evangelicals and Baptists sacrifice and eat small children at communion. Now, that's crazy, I know, but it's nothing new. And Jesus calls these accusers a synagogue of Satan. They'd gone to Satan's side by slandering Christians and damaging the reputation of Jesus' followers. Now comes a critical challenge, and it's sobering. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. How about hearing that as your challenge? Persecution has been bad, but it's going to get worse. Listen to me, friends. We are rarely aware But in the spiritual realm, there is a cosmic battle underway. Our physical eyes see only the physical plane, but behind and underneath what our eyes see, much more is going on in the spiritual realm. And ever since the creation of the world, God in love and mercy has been seeking to bless the people on this planet. But he has an arch enemy who loves to destroy what God wants to build. About this, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and I've come to lay down my life to save the sheep. Satan is an enemy, a thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you might have life. Full life, rich life, sweet life. And for the church in Smyrna, Satan is pouring out all of his fury, attempting to destroy the beauty that Jesus sees in this church. This is a frontal attack from the enemy. This one is not subtle at all. The forces of politics and society are aligned against Christians trying to destroy the body of Christ in Smyrna, seeking to put such pressure on them that they turn away from following Jesus. And Jesus' word to them is it's going to get worse. Some will be thrown into prison. Some may even lose their lives for Jesus. And though there's no detail of that in Scripture about what actually happened in Smyrna, we do know from history 
that about a hundred years later, the pastor of the church here, a man by the name of Polycarp, was burned at the stake because he would not light incense to worship Caesar. You'll notice here that there's no constructive criticism in this letter. Jesus has no words of correction for the Smyrna church, one of only two churches in the list that doesn't receive a word that says repent. I'm sure they're not perfect, but they're healthy. And they were healthy in the face of unbelievable opposition and hardship and persecution. What Jesus saw in this church was their faithfulness, their unwillingness to buckle under pressure, their willingness to suffer, even if that's what it took to stay faithful to Jesus. They were poor, they were persecuted, they were under pressure. Not the kind of church that a lot of people want to join. Not very impressive, except to Jesus. Jesus sees their wealth and their value and how precious they are to his heart. And that reminds me that one day when Jesus reigns, when the kingdom is here, the corrupt values of our world are going to be seen for how empty they are. And the values of the upside-down kingdom will dominate in that day. Blessed are you poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. In the kingdom, we'll see who the real wealthy are and how honored those are who have struggled and suffered to be faithful to King Jesus. There is for this church critical counsel, crucial counsel. Jesus says, stay faithful. Be faithful even unto death. Even if they take your life, stay faithful to Jesus. Faithful in, li in the living, faithful in in the dying, committed to be a Jesus follower in all of it. I was a passionate, zealous Jesus follower in my teen years. I like to think that I still am, but maybe a little wiser and a little more aware of what it costs. And I remember sharing my personal testimony when I lived in Albuquerque, a high school kid, shared my personal testimony at a Youth for Christ club at a neighboring high school. And I can remember saying, I believe God has called me to be a missionary to India. And it may be that like many other believers in that land, I may be a martyr for Jesus. And I'm willing. I'd be proud to be a martyr for Jesus. What a brash thing for a youngster to say, don't you think? And later, as our campus life director, Colin Clark, drove my brother and I home, he said, Steve, it's impressive that you'd be willing to die for Jesus, but here's a tougher question. Would you be willing to live for Jesus? 
How could you die for him if you won't live for him? I've never forgotten that challenge. Look at verse 10. Faithful unto death. That means faithful in the living and, if necessary, faithful in the dying. Always faithful as a follower of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4.2. It's required of a steward that he be found faithful. Faithful. And here's the conditional promise. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know, one of the most interesting geographical features of Smyrna, and you can still see it, I'm told, in Izmir, is that it has an acropolis there, the highest point in all of the city, and there was a glorious temple at the top of the acropolis that was known as the crown of Smyrna. What an interesting irony. You Christians refuse to do the deal in that crown that sits on top of the Acropolis. Well, Jesus is going to give you a glorious crown. The crown of life. I don't know. Does Jesus mean for us to take that Literally, I, I, I wonder. Will we get a literal crown for faithfulness to the Lord? This is not the only text that suggests that. 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown, a wreath that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 2 Timothy 4.8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. James 1.12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 5.4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So do you think that Jesus will give us a literal crown when we get to heaven? I don't know. The Greek word for crown is Stephanos. That's my name. My name means crown. But I can't imagine what I'll look like with a crown of gold and and jewels and all that stuff. But never mind, because Revelation 4.10 says, we'll cast all of our crowns and honors at Jesus' feet, saying, you're the only one who is worthy. Only who Jesus deserves a crown. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers We'll see this word nakao over and over again, conquer. He who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In Christ, we're called to conquer. To conquer what? To conquer temptation. To conquer how easy it would be to knuckle under pressure. 
And even if persecution could come for us, we're called to conquer fear, to conquer despair, to conquer self-pity. That's a big one for me. To conquer pride and anger and bitterness and resentment. Do you sense you've got a long way to go to become a conqueror? I do. Jesus, thank you that you've conquered for me, that you've conquered sin and death, but make me please, make me please in my real life a conqueror. I repent from my desire to do life my own way. I want to be faithful to do life your way. He who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Well, we'll see this picture frequently in Revelation. The first death is the physical death, when our bodies stop functioning and our hearts stop beating, and most all of us will experience the first death. Then Jesus will re resurrect our bodies at his coming, but the second death is when the lost find themselves in hell for rejecting Jesus, and the second death is irreversible. Jesus has conquered death for us who follow him. Quickly now, a couple of important applications. First, about persecution. Listen to me. Listen to me. We are so privileged to live in a land where we can worship God in freedom and speak about our faith openly. There's no persecution here. We may face some opposition, but nothing like persecution in this land. But listen, I've stopped thinking about that as some kind of blessing. I'm not sure that it is. It is the persecuted church in Smyrna that is honored and especially encouraged and affirmed by Jesus. Persecution has a way of purifying a church from trivialities. Persecution has a way of causing believers to love each other more because we discover we need each other so much. It causes believers to treasure the times they come together and worship. Boy, it did that for my friends in Ukraine. Persecuted churches don't have time to mess about with stuff that isn't important. And maybe that's the true blessing. And listen, you and I need to be praying, especially for Christians who are being marginalized for their faith, who are being imprisoned for Christ, who are often beaten and cursed and robbed just because they are Christians. Oh, by the way, this afternoon, go to YouTube and just simply look up Persecution in India, Francis Chan. Little three-minute video. I'll tell you, it sobered me. It reminded me to pray for the believers in the country that I thought God might lead me to. 
pray for the persecuted church. And I'm so thankful that Pastor Dave uh, uh, referred us today to this wonderful little smartphone app that gives you a people group, a country of uh, of persecuted believers, and every day so that you can hold them up in prayer and you can pray and then you can click, I prayed. They so value our prayers. I think I've been to Ukraine uh, 14 times now. And you know, it's expensive to get there. I I once asked Pastor Peter, the pastor of our sister church, Pastor said, you know what? I'm I'm spending a lot of money to come over here and visit with you and encourage you. Should Should I just stay home and send you the money? And he said, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. When you come, you bring us encouragement. When you come, you remind us that there are people in other parts of the world who are praying for us in our struggle and hardship. We need you so much. They so value our prayers. Will you commit to being a prayer warrior for those who are in prison for Jesus or who are being beaten for Jesus or who are condemned to die for Jesus? The third application, I think, is that we can talk about hardship this morning. Now listen to me. Hardship doesn't necessarily mean that God is punishing you. That God has taken his favor away. When we face hardship, it is a good thing for us to ask, Lord, is there some reason that you are disciplining me, chastening me? James says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And hardship may be discipline, punishment, but maybe not. The church in Smyrna was going through poverty and trouble and hardship and persecution, and it had nothing to do with punishment. Jesus honored them, and they found it an honor to serve and suffer for the name of Jesus. Would you? More important than being willing to die for Jesus is being to will live faithfully for him. God, make us a church like that. A church faithful like Smyrna. Do we want to suffer? No. Who would sign up for that? But if it would cause us to be more faithful to Jesus, wouldn't it be worth it? Here's what James 1 says. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Jesus, that's what I want to be. That's what we want to be. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we need you so desperately. By we, we, we need your presence here in this place, in this moment. As we look into our individual hearts and lives, 
as we look at ourselves as a congregation. We want to know how you evaluate us. We ask you, Lord, to give us insight and wisdom. Help us to hear what you are saying to us. And dear Jesus, this morning there are some of us who are saying, boy, this repentance thing, I got, I got, I got some work to do. Oh, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, lead us to repentance. You have said that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. You'll forgive us for all of our sins and cleanse us from every bit of unrighteousness. Oh, we need that. We want to be faithful. And all God's people said,